And we'll continue with our uh, teaching time together this morning. <clears throat> I want you to uh, picture your and uh, use your imagination for a minute. Yeah, I just wanted to, to pray for you, actually. Okay, do it. Uh, Jesus, I just lift up Brad to you as obviously he's, uh, he's feeling the weight of his friend and co-worker Keith this morning. And I just thank you for the man that he is. I just ask you to just bring him peace now as he tries to speak some prepared notes and maybe be distracted by his emotions. And just ask that you would just use, your, use those things in his life right now and just move in your spirit to give him the message that we need to hear from you today. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Danny. Appreciate it. So if you picture the scene, you're a tourist for the week in New York City, and you've just emerged uh, from a pizzeria in Little Italy, and you and your family are beginning to walk uh, towards uh, Grand Central Station, and you obviously have your bag of leftovers because as we all as good Canadians know, no human being should put that much food into their mouth as they serve south of the 49th parallel every single meal. And so you're walking towards Grand Central Station and you look up and you see this. Maybe not an unfamiliar sight, a man rummaging through the trash for food. He's drinking beer or what you think is beer from a brown paper bag. And on the one hand, there can be a strong kind of emotional or visceral response that we see to a fellow human being who's scrounging uh, for food through the trash. And on the other hand, sometimes when you see something day after day or you see an exposed to different places and different parts of the world, it can become almost completely immune to the sight of another human being that's hungry. Well, this past April, uh, there's a French tourist named Karine Gombeau, and she was moved by the sight of a man, and she decided to share her leftover pizza with him. So she approached him, and she said to him, Je suis désolé, which means I'm sorry, but the pizza is cold. And the man said, thank you very much. God bless you. So they both went on her way, on their way. She didn't think anything more of it until two days later when she saw her picture in the paper. You see, it turns out that this man, whom she was interacting with, is actually this man, actor Richard Gere, Hollywood icon, worth an estimated $100 million. Turns out that he was in New York City this past April filming his next movie, Time Out of Mind, and he was in the middle of playing a person who was homeless, and so he was in character, and he was reportedly being filmed by cameras at quite a distance, so it would allow him to be in character in Grand Central Station without people realizing that a shoot was in progress. And appearances then can be Deceiving. Here's this woman thinking she's sharing her leftovers with someone who really desperately needs them, and she's giving cold pizza to a multimillionaire. When I read this, it stood out to me as just one example of what we're going to look at today, and that is the fact that we have a tendency to treat people differently based on their external appearances. 
This fall, we're in a teaching series in the book of James called Mirror, Mirror. And the book of James is a little book tucked away at the back of the New Testament, and it gives us lots of practical advice for living. And the advice, though, is rooted in a willingness to be self-reflective, to look at our own lives in the mirror, hence the title of the series. And today, we're gonna hold up a mirror to one aspect of our lives, and that is how we look at other people. Two weeks ago, we explored what it's like to have God's perspective on trials and difficulties that come into our lives. And then last weekend, we looked at James chapter one, uh, verses five to eight, and that talks about what we do when we don't know what to do. And James reminds us to ask God for wisdom. But we're also to be careful about how we ask, James reminds us. And today we hold the mirror up to another area of our lives, and that is how we treat other people. And James is going to show us that oftentimes we have a danger of falling into favoritism based on external appearances. And he's going to ask us to question our judgment. And if our judgment's rooted only in external appearances, sometimes we'll find out that often... Like giving pizza to a millionaire movie star, our judgment is driven by our perceptions of reality. And our perceptions are driven by our motives. And our motives are not always pure or accurate. So let's read together what the Bible says in James chapter 1. And we're looking at verses 9, 10, and 11 this morning. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. So James goes on after he's talked about asking for wisdom and says, Believers who are poor... Have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them, because they will fade away like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises, the grass withers, and the little flower droops and falls, and its beauty fades away. In the same way, those who are rich will fade away with all of their achievements. And James is setting up for us this amazing reversal based on external appearances. We see although Christians who may look poor and shabby and disheveled or on the margins, that God has actually given them something unique and powerful. God has gifted them and dignified them with special measure of faith. It's as if those who are down and out by the world's economic standards are the first citizens of the kingdom. And I've certainly seen and been privileged to be uh, an observer to this, sitting with uh, Christians and sitting with people of faith in places like Guatemala, where we work every year as a community, uh, places like Tanzania, places like uh, First Nations reservations in northern Ontario. I have met people whose only worldly wealth is their faith. And James says, because of this, not because of their external appearances, they have something that you and I do not have and we cannot buy. They have received honor in the sight of the Lord. And this is why, friends, I think that our global family, our global brothers and sisters, have something profound to teach us as North Americans. But the question is, are we willing to listen to them 
or when we engage with them, do we do it from a place of superiority where we think we have all of the things that are necessary for them and we're gonna come as the givers and not be willing to also open our ears to maybe receiving the things that they have to teach us as well. But James doesn't stop there. He carries on with another reversal. He says if people who are poor can boast or be excited about the richness of faith that God can give them, the next verse says those who are rich in terms of worldly wealth, you and I, can boast in something too. But it's not in our wealth. And it's not in the pseudo-security that our suburban socioeconomic status tends to lure us with. Because throughout this book, James is going to come at this again and again. He loves using word pictures to get his points across to us. And so last week, he used the word picture of a wave. That if you are indecisive in when you pray, you're like a wave that's tossed by the wind, back and forth and back and forth. And today, he uses the word picture of a wildflower. Now, have you ever been up in the meadows around Mount Baker in the spring. It's beautiful. The meadows go from being covered in snow to being absolutely covered with delicate, tiny little wildflowers all over the place. Some of the meadows up there, I mean, they're just breathtaking. They're filled from peak to stream to trail with these little delicate flowers. And one of the most intriguing things to me when I go into that kind of an environment or go hiking in alpine meadows is to think about the short lifespan of these flowers. If you come back later on in the summer, then it's not even the same flowers that are there anymore. They poke up through the snow in the spring and then by the time it gets to the heat of summer, they don't even last. Millions and millions and millions of them will never, ever, ever be seen by human eyes in their temporary lives. And so this is the word picture that James uses to try and help us right-size our understanding of our own lives and experiences. James chooses to use it to describe our lives. Our lives, our homes, our jobs, our clothes, our cars, our degrees, our achievements, our RRSPs, all seem very, very, very permanent and important to us. But James reminds us and says, one day, all of these things will fade away. Just like a wildflower. They're here today, but they're not here forever. Why is he telling us this? Why does he make such a big deal about these wildflowers? make a big deal about the benefits of being poor and the dangers of thinking that we're rich. Well, turn with me in your Bibles or on your smartphone to James chapter two. This is one of the only extended sections in the book of James where he actually takes a lot of real estate to talk about one particular topic. And so I'm gonna begin reading in James chapter two, uh, verse one, and I'm gonna read through till verse Seven, because James makes, uh, tells us a story that helps paint the context of why this is important and the problem with perceptions and leading to play favorites. So James chapter two, verse one, he says, dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ 
if you favor some people over others. For example, James says, suppose someone comes into your meeting or your gathering dressed in fancy clothes, expensive jewelry, and another one comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you stand over there or sit on the floor, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom that God promised to those who love them? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus, whose noble name you bear? So James, in his storytelling, creates a scenario where a person would come into their church and faith community. Could happen anywhere. Could happen here at Jericho Ridge. Our front lines team immediately perceives at the door that the person who drove up, ooh, they drove up in a very nice vehicle. Ooh, maybe we could add them to the donor list. Hmm, they got over the car wearing fancy clothes. That would be a clue that they've never attended Jericho Ridge before, first of all, if they were really, really super dressed up in fancy clothes. But uh, let's say that the front lines team, Jody and Daryl, were on the door this morning greeted them immediately, just opened the door for them. Welcome here, we're really excited that you're here this morning. Ushered them up the stairs, made sure that they got handed off right away to Dan and Laura Martins, made sure that they got an info sheet. And Dan and Laura thought to themselves, well, these look like our kind of people here at Jericho Ridge. They're, they look young, they look awkwardly mobile, they have more than two children, this is perfect. I think they'll fit in really great around here. They, they're really gonna belong. So Dan and Laura then escort them to the good seats you know the ones right at the back. <laughs> like every, that's where the good seats are in all churches. It's, they're the quick and easy escape routes for everybody. So then Dan and Laura offer immediately to get them a coffee. Would they like coffee? Could it be tea? Could they get them anything else that would help make them comfortable in any way? And they make sure that people around them are talking to them, make sure that this is gonna be a great experience for this wonderful family that just started attending here at Jericho Ridge. Now meanwhile, at the same time, Someone wanders in from the hockey rink side and their clothes are maybe not as pristine as the family that drove up in their nice SUV. Maybe they haven't showered in a little while and no one greets them. People try not to make eye contact with them until they ask to speak to a pastor and then they think, oh right, they're probably here for a handout. Let's go get Pastor Keith. He's in charge of benevolence around here. No offer of coffee, no offer to help them find a seat. You know, we've had both experiences here at Jericho Ridge with all types of individuals in this setting. And so this story illustrates the problem, James is saying, of playing favorites, lest we think that we don't do this at all. He says, whether we want to admit it or not, how we treat people, our actions with people speak much louder than our words, whatever we're going to say to them. And our actions in a situation like that, if we were to play both of those scenarios out, communicate that actually some people are more important to us than others. Or some people, really, we view them as better than others. Because when we sift and we segregate 
and distance people or pull them close to us based on external appearances, we are nurturing a feeling of superiority in ourselves that we're good judges of character. We know best our kind of people. We know what's really going on. But external appearances, the scriptures remind us over and over and over again, are notoriously non-reliable predictors of internal reality. You see, people can look on the outside like they have it all together, but really they're wrestling through deep waters and are crying out for help and care and compassion. And looking at external appearances, if somebody has a smile on their face when they walk in in the morning, can be a horribly flawed way of making decisions. Back in our summer series, we talked about uh, an instance with the prophet Samuel who fell prey to this. Samuel was going to try to choose a new king. He'd been sent by God, and so he lined up a whole group of uh, young men, Jesse's sons in the town of Bethlehem, and his first oldest son, his first thought when he saw the first son was, this guy looks like a king. I'm sure this is the one. But you remember what God said to Samuel in that moment? He said to him, Samuel, Remember, I don't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. And James is making the same point to us about when he talks about how distracted we can get by the external reality or presentation that someone represents themselves with. He says when we get caught up in that and when we use that as our only decision-making grid, we are caught up with something inside of our own hearts and it's insidious and it's wrong because it's a feeble attempt to combine snobbery and spirituality. Because the problem with showing partiality and treating people differently based on their external appearances, is that favoritism and faith do not mix. James sets this story up and he almost pushes it over the top as if we're supposed to read it and go, well, that would never happen. We would never do anything like that. But he's trying to push us to think about all of the times when we treat people ways based on their external realities. We respond not with our hearts, but with our eyes. We tend to judge by appearances and accomplishments in North America, not by what's going on inside. But James just says it straight up in chapter two, verse one. He says, how can you even claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you go around favoring some people over other people? He's calling to mind the reality of the fact that Jesus himself didn't treat people based on their external appearances. God is not impressed by how someone is dressed, and so why should you and I be? When we begin to pull people into our orbit because we think to ourselves, ooh, they look like us, ooh, they act like us, Oh, they're in the same age cohort as us. Oh, we're beginning to walk a road of playing favorites. And favoritism and faith just don't mix. One of the commentators on this passage 
reminds us that favoritism based on external considerations is inconsistent with faith in Jesus because Jesus came to break down the barriers of nationality and class and race and gender and religion. And so when the church of Jesus Christ goes around making distinctions based on those categories, class, gender, race, religious background, how long you've been attending a church or not attending a church, sexual identity, all of these distinctions have no place in the church. It's not up to you or I to go around policing the quality of someone's internal convictions and faith in Jesus based on the way that they present themselves externally and based on the way that things look on the outside. See, the problem with favoritism is that it's only skin deep. And so we're making our decisions based on radically incomplete information. Now, does this mean that you are not going to make any distinctions at all? No, that's really tough to do. We'd have to extract ourselves from all of our cultural biases in order to get away with that. But James is pushing us on this one and saying, you know, if you're a person of faith and you want to follow the way of Jesus, you're going to work harder at thinking about the way that you treat those around you. doesn't mean that we make no distinctions at all. If the standard for your decision-making is valid, that's one thing. For example, we read in our life journaling, in our reading together this last week in 1 John, and 1 John over and over again says, you gotta test things, like false teachers, are they speaking the truth or are they not? And so the, there's a legitimate standard that needs to be applied there, a valid one, distinguishing falsehood from truth. And so we wouldn't just go around saying, well, I just can't judge that at all. There's valid standards and there's invalid standards to make decisions on. And James is saying external presentation, that's an invalid standard. And so we don't say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not allowed to play favorites or judge. We just accept anyone and everyone, no matter what. You would challenge a person who is engaged in false teaching and saying, you know what, that's not appropriate. That's not in line with the things that we see in scriptures. We're trying to exercise good judgment about that. But James says, when you, do, when you try to exercise good judgment based on external realities, it's not a reliable predictor. And so James is not talking about suspending any type of judgment calls here. He's talking about making your decisions based on public opinion and optics. Playing favorites, treating people in certain ways based on how a person looks to you. Well, if we all want to hang out with people who look like us, how wrong could that be? Look with me at James chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. James says, oh yes indeed, it's good when you obey the royal law as it's found in scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. Person who keeps all the laws except one is just as guilty as the person who's broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but you don't commit adultery, you've still broken the law. So whatever you say and whatever you do, remember, James says, you will be judged by the law that sets you free. 
There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. James's logic is a, is a bit harder to follow in this section, but let me try and sketch it for us here. James says one of the commands in the Bible that sums up the way in which we should orient ourselves to each other is love your neighbor as yourself. But, he says, if you show favoritism to people and treat one group of people preferentially, you are breaking that commandment of loving your neighbor as yourself. You're actually saying, I love myself and my people more than I love you and your people. You see, the problem with playing favorites is that when I show partiality, I am not showing love to my neighbor. And if God has commanded me to do this, then not doing it is a sin. You see, we think, when James is trying to get us to think, oh yeah, we would think murder, that's a, that's a really big sin. Or committing adultery, that's a really big sin. James says, if you show partiality, favoritism is also a sin. We don't like to call it that. We don't often preach against it or talk about it. But James goes right for the jugular. If you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You can say all you want. Well, I haven't murdered anyone lately. Well, I haven't committed adultery this week. But if you engage in the sin of partiality and play favorites, you are a lawbreaker. And you, just like all of us, are in need of God's mercy and forgiveness. See, we like to downplay favoritism and tell ourselves that it's not too bad or it's not that bad until you've been on the receiving end of it and you've had someone treat you in a way that you've been excluded because of your economic status or how you were dressed, then it doesn't feel so minor or small anymore. James is here helping us to understand that it's about much more than simply the danger of misseating someone on a Sunday morning or mistreating someone based on how they're dressed. James is saying what he's going to say throughout the whole book, it's what's in your heart that's coming out in the way that you act. Gary Smalley and John Trent in their book, uh, A Dad's Blessing, talk about the experience of a man who was excluded from his church because he was an AIDS activist and people weren't sure that they wanted their kids hanging around with those kinds of people. And they rightly point out that the issue that James is addressing is not whether the distinction is made over economic or social or educational or physical or spiritual or health concerns or differences. The issue is that our motives for making the distinction are immediately called into question because favoritism is a sin. Favoritism in us is us giving someone to someone what we think they deserve based on how they present, based on external appearances or how similar they are to us. But you see, James says, mercy is the exact opposite. 
Mercy is God giving us what we don't deserve because of the work of Jesus Christ. And that is us invited into the process of demonstrating mercy to those around us and our calling as people of faith. So how do we overcome the sin of favoritism? I don't know. It's a tricky one to root out of our lives because our culture is so predicated on external appearances. But I wonder if we could take some small steps this week as people of faith to branch out beyond our comfort zones and begin to think and act like people who might be trying to undercut the sin of favoritism and working with God and the Holy Spirit to do that. So let me suggest a few actions that might undercut favoritism. You may come up with others uh, in your own setting that you want to talk about or that you may want to post to our Facebook page uh, or tweet to at jerichoridge.com. So let me just suggest one. Kids, this is for you guys. You're going to head back to school tomorrow, right? So class lists are going to get all sorted out and some of the kids in your class you will know, some of them you will not know. It's super easy to gravitate toward those kids whom you already know, who live in your neighborhood, and who have the same brand of shoes as you and backpacks as you. It's almost natural. But I want you to try something this week. I want you to try talking to somebody in your class who might be different than you in some way. They might be from a different culture. They might come from a different school. They might have a physical limitation in some way. But this week, I want you to try, as you go back to school, to extend a hand of friendship to somebody who's different from you. And I'll give you a hint on this one, and I'll let you in a little secret, kids. This is actually harder for adults to do than it is for children. Adults have a a harder time with this one, too. And so kids, you may have to lead the way on this. You may have to show us how to actually extend a hand of friendship to somebody who's different than you. And then maybe we can follow your good example. Adults, say hi to someone this week when you're dropping your children off whom you may not normally engage in conversation with. See, one way to break the habit of favoritism in your life is to step across that divide and to treat people whom you would not normally show favoritism to as equals and as friends. Another way to break the hold of favoritism in your life is to begin to talk like a person who doesn't play that kind of game. So when you do this, and you're talking about people, I want you to practice giving people dignity with how you talk about them or with them, or how you talk to them. Some of this can be really simple. It's policing your language. Here at Jericho, we don't talk about the poor as a category. We talk about people who are poor. Their personhood leads the way. Their economic circumstances do not define who they are. Think about how you talk to your kids in the car when you see a person on the median who is panhandling. Try to make eye contact with them and smile. Try to talk to a person who you see on your way to work who's asking for a handout. Ask them their name. 
Instead of yelling at a person in our neighborhood, one of the things that I watch every Monday morning is that there is an individual who comes through and picks through all of the recycling can to get uh, recycling bins to get cans. And there's a few neighbors who go out and yell at them and shoo them away. Instead of doing that, why don't you try to actually have your cans pre-separated for them and give them to them in person? Ask them their name. Give them a cup of coffee or cold water. See, if you want to undercut the sin of favoritism, you want to work at speaking and thinking in a way that is loving and kind and honoring. You know, the way that you hope all of your friends are speaking about you when you're not in the room. Give people dignity with how you talk to them or how you talk about them. And the last suggestion is a little bit of a tough one because people who play favorites only give something to people who expect to get something in return if it's going to be reciprocated. They only have someone over for a meal who may invite them over later on. They only help people move who might help them. But what if you did something this week with no possibility for being repaid in any way, shape, or form? What if you could find a way to act with mercy and humility and compassion toward a person who doesn't deserve it and who may not reciprocate it? That's how James closes this section on favoritism. He reminds us that the person who makes no allowances for others will find none made for them. See, all of us have probably have people in our lives whom we don't particularly feel like deserve compassion or mercy. And it can be easy for us immediately when we think about them to list all of the reasons why they don't deserve it and why we shouldn't treat them, why it would be just and right for us to treat them exactly how they deserve to be treated. But James gently lifts our gaze from that and invites us not to treat them like they deserve to be treated, but to treat them how God treated us. You see, God doesn't treat us like we deserve. In his mercy, in his love, he came down from heaven, not as a king, not as one who played favorites, not as one who expected that we would get all cleaned up before we came to Jesus, but as one who demonstrated humility and compassion and love for the outcast at every turn and who invites you and I to go and do likewise. Let's pray together and our team is gonna come and lead us in two simple songs of response. Our prayer teams will be available for you at the sides as well and I'd invite you to uh, make yourself available uh, to them to pray with you. I'm gonna invite you to stand as I pray uh, with you and we worship together. Let's stand. Father, I want to thank you that all people are equal in your sight. I want you to forgive us, Father. Forgive me for judging people based on appearances and accomplishments. Father, I want you to forgive us for the way in which sometimes we favor the rich and the powerful over people who appear to us 
to be weak or different or marginalized in some way. And God, I want to ask you to change our hearts. I want you to teach us, Father, what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so, Jesus, we ask that we would follow your example, you who walked in humility, you who walked in places of brokenness and who invite us to do the same, Father. We want to commit ourselves to that same attitude which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but who lowered himself, made himself nothing. And so, Father, we want to follow you as our leader and as our humble king. Would you speak to us, God, about areas in our own heart where we have walked in favoritism and not considered it sinful? We want to ask you, Father, to walk with us in our times of need and brokenness, that we would cling to you as needy and as people who are seeking after you, Father, and trying to follow you as best as we can. Empower us by your Holy Spirit during this time in Jesus' name. Let's sing together.